Thank you for pressing start on episode 26 of Underplayed, KZUM's indie video game podcast. Today we have two secret games, followed by a review of our featured game, Return of the Obra Dinn. Here on Underplayed, we review the games with small budgets but big hearts, the lesser-known experiences with imaginative ideas. I'm Bopo, and joining me is my player too, Disco Cola. How are you, Disco Cola? Well, I'm in one piece, that's for sure. How are you today, <laughs> Bopo? I'm doing just fine. My first mate, oh wait, that's not right, uh, midshipman, no? Uh, gunner's mate, helmsman, uh, third mate steward, butcher? Aha, butcher, alive, America. Those are references to our featured game, Return of the Oberdin. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about this one with you. I think there's a lot of discussion topics. Um, it's certainly a game where no two people will probably play it in the exact same way. Um, so we've had a couple of those games along the way here on Underplayed, and those always provide uh, us the opportunity to talk about our different perspectives and how we approached things. So it'll be an interesting featured game this episode. And uh, before we get on with our secret games and our featured games and such, I want to cover the Game Awards 2022. Now, as we sit down, it is almost mid-December uh, 2022. The Game Awards just happened a few nights ago, and uh, we reviewed Stray last episode, and we talked about how it was nominated for all these things. I think I forgot how soon the Game Awards were going to happen. Yeah. And now they've happened. I watched them all in their entirety. Um, I watched the pre-show, which is half an hour. I watched the whole ceremony and all the announcements and wow, things. Wow, you really got into it. I got into it. I think the past two or three years I've watched the whole thing. And um, want to talk about Stray and how it actually won in the two big categories it was nominated for. So it won, or I, sorry, it was nominated for Game of the Year, but it didn't win that. However, it did win Best Debut Indie, beating out Neon White, Norco, Tunic, and Vampire Survivors. And it also won Best Indie overall, beating out Cult of the Lamb, Neon White, Sifu, and Tunic. Yeah. Um, all of which I've heard amazing things yeah, about. Yeah, all great games. Yeah. So uh, did you have a reaction seeing that? Were you surprised that Stray won? Overall, nothing that I only saw the last about hour of the video game awards, um, but pretty much nothing that I saw during the video game awards were surprising. I expected, I expected Stray to to take home those two awards, uh, even though I've heard great things about Tunic um, and Neon White. I've seen, but and I ex you know I expected Elden Ring to win pretty much everything it was nominated for. <laughs> right. I think the biggest surprise was probably. God of War's sound design or music or whatever that it won. Oh, yeah. Because I haven't heard anything specific about the music, and generally, like, big AAA titles like that have very, like, subdued, you know, movie score-type music, which yeah. is doesn't really stand out. But So I would say that's the only surprise of the whole night for me. Gotcha. As far as Stray itself, not a surprise for you. I'd say it wasn't a surprise for me that it won Best Debut Indie and Best Indie overall. Um, I think maybe Tunic would have been um, a frontrunner alongside it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Stray had a big subcultural moment oh, yeah. this past summer. So lots of people were posting about that on yeah. Twitter. It, it was it was over pretty quick because it's a short game, but it was, like, it, and it, it was a big moment. Yes, and the, the year was also very busy for games. So yeah, the, the moment that it had was very strong. 
And I remember tons of people posting videos of their cats mm -hmm. at home reacting to them playing the game. <laughs> and there's just something so palpable, so, something so powerful about that that none of the other games really captured in a bottle yeah. in the same way. I'd say Cult of the Lamb had had a pretty big moment too. But Yeah, and that was one of the earlier nominees to be released in the year. I think Sifu was far and away the earliest um, best indie nom released. But um, at the end of the day, these awards are kind of like a popularity contest. And Stray mm -hmm. was definitely the popular um, contestant in those categories. And I was looking at Stray on Steam and like it has – Way more reviews than I expected it to have at this point. It has like over 90,000. Oh, yeah. Um, which is just insane. Um, Want to talk about a couple other uh, announcement things because the Game Awards are not only an awards ceremony, but they're also a huge platform for announcements for games large and small, AAA games, indie games, some of the indie games that we got announced, and they're some of the bigger ones, but Hades 2. Yeah, baby. Announced by Supergiant Games. Were you expecting Supergiant Games to go with a sequel no, for Hades for the even, next game? I wasn't expecting any sequels to anything ever from them. Because so far, thing. yeah, their thing is just like, here's a new unique experience and here's another one. And the only thing that really ties them together is like Darren Korb and the art style. Yes. Yeah, the, you, you can look at them and tell, okay, that's from the same developer. You can listen to them and, and say, okay, that's got to be the same composer. Mm -hmm. But they change up the genre. They change up the perspective, uh, it, setting. It, yeah, yeah, they love to experiment. I think what happened with Hades is it was just such a smash success that they're like, we've got to keep doing this. Yeah, they probably are the most in love with this uh, now series mm -hmm. um, compared to their whole um, gameography. So I'm so excited yeah. for Hades too. And there's so so much to pull from for the subject matter because there's still like a lot of gods that I was like, man. Where's Apollo? Where's Hera? Like, come on. So there's still like so many gods that they can pull from for the for the next one. Yeah, and I think we saw Apollo we in did. the trailer. Is yeah. that right? We saw a couple other new characters. Yep. And it looks like we'll be playing as a girl who might be Zagreus's daughter. Did I read that right? I didn't take it as that. Okay, because um, she had the same kind of look going on with the two different uh, eye colors. I'm not sure, though. Well, I, I think she's Hades' daughter. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, because okay. she said, I'm coming, Dad. Okay. I, I assumed, I assumed it was Zagreus's, yeah. but who knows? Maybe. I don't know. Either way would be cool. Yeah. Um, now, we also got uh, a trailer for Earthblade, which is the next game from Extremely OK Games, who developed Celeste. And this is a 2D, I think it's a platformer, but it's more about exploration, it seems like, okay. than Celeste. Not much is known about it. It was a pretty... Um, Brief trailer, sparse on details, and this game won't be out until 2024, so don't expect that one for a while. Uh, some people were expecting more stuff about Silk Song. Silk Song, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, that none of that <laughs> happened, although that is supposed to come out fairly soon, like within the next by this by the time this episode's out, hopefully within like six to eight months. Yeah, um, but we will see. And then another thing I wanted to touch on in the 30 minute pre-show. That's where they do a lot of smaller awards and smaller announcements. And there was a game that caught my eye, and it's called Viewfinder. And it looks like it's going to be a PS4, PS5 exclusive. Okay. I think I saw this one. Yes. I, th I, sh I sent you this in a message. And this is a first-person puzzle game that looks very similar to Superliminal and uh, The Witness and Maquette. This has you in these environments where you're looking at a puzzle – 
like I think in the trailer, one example was there was a ledge you couldn't climb to or jump to. It was too far up. And you hold up a picture that has a completely different scene in it. And that picture has a building that has collapsed. And then you take the picture away. And what was in that picture is now imprinted in a 3D fashion in the world around you. So now there's this building that's collapsed, creating a bridge to get up to the ledge you couldn't get to before. And it is mind-blowing. It is crazy. <laughs> um, it apparently has been in development for many years. Uh, it looks very complex, but also simple in yeah. a way. Like the objective is simple, but what's going on under the hood is probably really complex. So yeah, The creative minds that have to come up with stuff like that is – just blows me away. I can't, I can't even come close. Yeah. I So that one is now on my indie game radar. I actually keep a list on the GG app of indie games that I um, see in a showcase or in an announcement that I can't quite add to a wish list on my platform of choice or a game that's not out yet. So that mm-hmm. one got added to that list immediately. So anyway, wanted to say those are some cool announcements and congratulations to Stray our previous featured game on last episode. Uh, With that, we can move on to our secrets games. Secret games. Secret games. I know you're playing without me. Secret games. Well, I'm here to tell you, baby. Secret games. I've been playing too. Secret games. In Secret Games, we review an indie game, a piece uh, that we've been playing in secret. We don't know what the other person picked. Uh, the only rules here are uh, we pick a game we haven't reviewed before, and it shouldn't be a game that's on our approved possible featured games list. We can pick a game that has to do with our featured game this episode, Return of the Oberdin. Disco Cola usually does that. Or we can pick a game that's completely different uh, than our featured game. I usually go that route. So uh, we have a good variety here in Secret Games. Let's start with you, Disco Cola. Let the mystery be no more. Reveal and review your secret game for episode 26 of Underplayed. All right. My secret game comes from Funomina Studios, and it is Wattum. No, it is not. And I just, oh, I just sent you the wrong trailer, my friend. Oh, what? You're you're freaking me out. Wait, what? You sent me the Gorogoa trailer. I did. But is it, my is it, secret game not? is Wattum. Is it seriously? It is seriously Wattum. Awesome. Finally. Yes. You finally picked Wattum. <laughs> I finally picked Wattum. I thought you would save this for like a season uh, ender or season opener or something. Nah, baby. Okay. Season three, episode four. Wattum. Wow. Okay. In, I, will, yeah, I will watch the trailer watch while you talk. Let's watch that trailer. In Wattum, you begin the game as the mayor, a cuboid lad with a cool hat. He is seemingly alone when suddenly he realized the small rock on the ground, as well as the rock that he was sitting upon, are friends. From there, more and more friends find their way back to you after you perform certain tasks. Um, These friends include the likes of White Flower, Sushi, Pencil, Left Eye, (laughs) Toilet, Autumn, Octopus Toy, and many, 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 many more. This is like a many more. list of pickups from a Donut County level. <laughs> That's very much like if you took the pickup list from Donut County and gave them faces, you would be playing Wattam, <laughs> yeah, I think. basically. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, your goal becomes to welcome everyone home and remember what everyone has forgotten before this 
cataclysm that seems to have separated everyone in the first place. So, to get started on this game, uh, this is easily, by a large margin, the most chaotic game I've ever played in my life. Whoa. Immediately, stuff goes off the wall bananas. Everything in Watam can do a few things with the exception of three really gargantuan characters. Um, everything in Watam can hold hands. Most Watam characters can move around and climb on top of uh, other characters to make stacks. Um, and then there are a special handful of Watam characters that have uh, unique abilities. So, for example, the mayor and three other characters, all of which resemble the face buttons on a PlayStation controller, um, they can wear the cool hat and they create a magical bomb. Um, the toilet can catch and flush most things, and when that happens, they will come out of pipe, which is a different character, and could be located in an entirely different place on the map. So essentially they're teleporting at that point. When they are coming out of pipe after being flushed down the toilet, they are coming out of the pipe as a golden version of themselves. And there's more characters that do more unique things, but those are just a couple examples. Um, but I would say that the main central thing that you can do is Watam, in Watam is, quote, go kaboom with the magic bomb uh, and make circles. Now, going kaboom is something that every Watam character enjoys. They enjoy being exploded with this bomb. Uh, if you are the mayor and you hold down the bomb button, you can get this little, like, drum roll, and every character in a certain radius will excitedly run over to the mayor in anticipation for the explosion, and that will send everybody flying with a colorful smoke trail uh, following them. Um, and then the other thing I mentioned, making circles, is when multiple people hold hands, uh, the game allows you to spin around really fast. Now, in a vacuum, this isn't anything. It doesn't do anything. But it does have magical properties, and when done in certain ways or certain times, uh, it could even move the story forward. So I wish that I could say that about sums it up, but there's still just so much more happening at such a wild speed, and I can't really, I can't really properly explain all of it here, so I won't. Um, but I think that covers, like the strongest principles of the game. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about some things I like about the game. First off, just generally, the aesthetic of the game. It has a lot of bright colors. Um, every character shares nearly the same simple pencil-drawn face, um, so that gives like a unique uh, consistency across every random item that this game throws at you. Um, Generally, the only things like it in the gaming sphere are other games from the mind of Keita Takahashi, who is famous for Katamari Damachi and Nobi 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 Nobu Nobu Boy. Nobi Nobi Boy. Nobi Nobi Boy. I played that one. Yeah. So it's a familiar art style, and that's kind of what I was looking for when I wanted to play Watam. Um, I love the way that a lot of those special Watam characters' abilities interact with each other. It's very like. Let's say character A interacts with special character B, and then as a result of that interaction goes to special character C, uh, and then you can interact with special character D in a unique way that you couldn't before that interaction with special character C. So there's a lot of like transformations and, and um, 
cool ways that things interact and it can be like kind of cyclical too in a way so it's it's pretty fun generally the overall message of the game uh is is something that i liked groups of characters will speak in different languages now there there are no voice acted words it's all gibberish but there will be speech bubbles and like one handful of characters all of their words are written in an english alphabet and another group of characters will all speak in a Korean alphabet, uh, and then another group uses the Russian alphabet, and so on. So this, along with the hand-holding and the stacking, implies that there are ways that everyone is all the same despite being so far apart, and we're still able to communicate and find common ground. Um, And that's all done in a really cute way, and so I appreciate that a lot. There's some great Easter eggs in Watam, You do have to earn them, uh, but I think they're worth it. So depending on your level of gaming history knowledge, it might not be worth the amount of work you have to do, um, but I felt like it was a nice reward to put in all that effort. Uh, And then the last thing I want to point out in the likes column is just the confined sandbox nature of the game. This has its downsides that I'll talk about too, but generally you can manipulate nearly everything in one way or another, uh, which allows for some fun, like, self-made challenges to perform, similar to something I might do in a goose game or something. Mm, Sure. Um, Now, on that topic, and moving into the dislikes column, in this sandbox, pretty much everything has a mind of its own, for better or worse. So if you're trying to get maybe several different characters in one place, um, but they're on very different parts of the world, you might be wrangling some cats here. So you may get the first two characters where you want them, uh, but on your way to get to the third, one of them may have traveled all the way across the map, and now you have to go get that first character again. Um, this happens a lot, too. Like, it's it's very common for that to happen. There are a couple things you can do to try and, like, mitigate that, but even that is not 100%. So that's probably one of my least favorite things about the game. Um, controlling characters can get wonky, mostly when holding hands or stacking, Now, the stacking one seems fair. You are a stack of characters, like, all resting on one person. So that seems fair to me. But, like, I feel like hand-holding should should feel a little bit better. Uh, And additionally, on controls, like, the act of swapping between characters with the stick control can sometimes be very annoying. Um, Doesn't always work how you want it to. I've mentioned hats. There are a lot of hats in this game, um, but the game is so, like, wild and chaotic that it becomes easy to lose that kind of stuff. Like most hats don't do anything, they're just for decoration. Um, But I've managed to lose track of the special hats that activate the magic bomb. And each of the four characters capable of doing the the magic bomb has their own. But in my playthrough, I've just like, I lost two of them and I don't know where they are. I can't find them. And mostly this game is just kind of nonsense for nonsense's sake. You're doing random things, and as a result, like a group of characters will enter the game, but there's no there's no connection between that group of characters, which, for example, there's a whole group of school supplies. There's no connection between the school supplies coming home and what you did to trigger that. You just are doing just happens. you're just doing strange things, and then suddenly, oh, here comes another float with more friends. Certain little side questy things just sort of happen, but and and they'll occasionally like have a bit of story, 
Um, but the delivery of many of the story bits, um, both main story and side story, just the delivery feels strange. By extension, part of the ending was unexpected, but not in a way that felt fun or surprising, just in a way that didn't seem like it matched the rest of the experience of the game. So yeah, those are my likes, my dislikes. We're finally here. Bopo, we're at the end of the Wadham saga. <laughs> you can still joke that it's your secret game from now on. It just <laughs> will carry a different weight. I oh, think. Yeah. okay. <laughs> I guess I was assuming that it was also done too, but then I was thinking about it more while you were talking. But yeah, what do you uh, what do you rate Wadham then? Yeah, man, I mean- This seems like a really weird game to rate yeah. just because there's so much going on. Yeah, by having a saga at all, the game may have been built up a little bit too much. Um, if you can play a little bit at a time, it might be a little bit more of an enjoyable experience than I had. Um, it is kind of something where you can just pick up whenever. Um, but uh, I don't really want to play it again unless I do some of those self-made challenges. So for me, I, I know a lot of people love this game, and I think that uh, is fair. I think I get why. Uh, but for me, it's somewhere between a 6.5 and a 7. So I'm going to round up for a 7. That's what I would have guessed. Um, based on your comments and what you historically rate things uh, based on those kinds of yes, comments. Sir. So, um, yeah, this feels like a game that must be played to be fully understood mm. because you you described a lot of very visual things, all the companions, all the activities you're doing, the self-made challenges, the challenges that are in there, um, some of the weird story things that happen. But looking at this trailer and listening to you, I feel like I can't fully can't marry them it. together. Yeah. The game I is need not to, what I expected. I need to like touch it and play around with it to understand what is going on in Watam. Question for you, and it's a non-traditional question I would ask in this section, but do you think I would like this game? Ooh, do you like Katamari? I love Katamari. Okay. I love Katamari. Um, I played Nobi Nobi Boy, and that I don't think is as strong as Katamari. That one is more bizarre, I think, okay. than Katamari. But I didn't dislike it because it was more bizarre. I disliked it because it was harder to wrangle the characters with those really strange controls. Mm, okay. You know what I mean? So, so uh, based on what you're telling me, you might not love it as much. Okay. Um, I don't know. One of the things that, that uh, I think of as Katamari has a lot of chaos, but it's a little bit, it's controlled chaos. Yeah. Wadham has a lot of chaos and it's just wild and yep, and just. all over the place. So this might be closer to a Nobi Nobi than uh than a Katamari. Gotcha. Okay, I might not put it at the top of my playlist then. It might not be my jealous game for season three, but um I do own it. I could play it someday. I might play it someday. Yeah. If turn, I'm looking turn for it something on. weird. Yeah. Turn it on. Some of those self made challenges will probably be what makes it just play it for don't don't go for completion if you don't have to. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I played the physical PS4 version from the Annapurna Interactive Limited Edition Deluxe Set from I Am 8-Bit, which actually has so many cool games in it. <laughs> uh, that was worth every penny. Um, Wadham is also available on PC. Uh, I will mention briefly that the studio that made Wadham, uh, Funamina, in 2022 has um, seen some controversy because of a co-founder... Uh, named Robin Hunnicky, I think is how we say her name. Um, but there have been accusations of emotional abuse mm -hmm. by um, Hunnicky at the studio. And I know that there's been some worry about the studio shutting down um, because of the studio's 
a possible inability to um, obtain outside funding for their games and just what's been going on at the studio. I haven't heard any developments as far as whether that happened in the six or seven months since those um, news stories broke. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that studio. But um, obviously, we hope for the best for the people who worked very hard on Wattam and other games like Luna um, from their gameography. It is time for my secret game. My secret game is Tori 2. <laughs> Ooh, I am already in love with this thumbnail. So I just sent you the trailer you can watch while I talk. All righty. So Tori 2, I just want to make a note up top. I originally planned to play a game for this episode called Tori 3D, mm. which is the predecessor to Tori 2. And when I played Tori 3D, I realized it's a super short game. I also realized it had a sequel that was super short, and I decided to play both games in one sitting. Ooh. And I am choosing to review Tori 2 on this episode because I think it is a slightly better experience than Tori 3D. Normally, I would never take a sequel and review it first and feature it first on the show before uh, its predecessor. For example, I would never want us to review Axiom Verge 2 before reviewing Axiom Verge. <laughs> right, right. I would never want to review Slime Rancher 2 as a secret game before Slime Rancher 1. I'd never want us to review for a featured game Hades 2 before Hades 1. It just doesn't make sense to do that. But Momodora excluded. Momodora excluded. That one is kind of a. It's, it's different. And it's a prequel and it's kind of a. It's a jumping on point yeah. for people. So yeah. there are exceptions. Here's a different kind of exception where these two games can be thought of in the same breath, can be played in the same sit-down situation. And so I think they can be thought of together in the same package. And so in thinking about them together, I'm choosing the one I think is slightly superior, which is the sequel Tori 2. A lot of things I talk about will also apply to Tori 3D. So in a way, it's kind of a review of both games, but officially the slot is for Tori 2. Okay. The so, GG app will have the Tori The GG 2. app will only have Tori 2 in our list of games reviewed on the podcast, not Tori 3D as well. But anyway, getting on with that, Tori 2 is a 2021 3D platformer. It was developed by Cyactro and also published by Cyactro, which is a moniker for Marcus Horn. Uh, the game synopsis from the Steam storefront reads, quote, a bite-sized 3D platformer sequel with more focus on the things people enjoyed in the first game, like fast gameplay, flow-focused levels, and cute costumes. Two this time. <laughs> End quote. Um, <laughs> so Tori 2 is a very short 3D platformer with a low-poly, late-90s style yeah, it is. Uh, for graphics. Yeah, it is. Sequel to Tori 3D, which also released in 2021. You play as a yellow bird with sunglasses, uh, platforming through nine different levels in Tori 2. Levels range in aesthetics from the sunny palm tree paradise to lava-filled levels like Pyro Palace to the outer space in Dash Dimension. And you can jump, double jump, and sprint. There are different kinds of mechanics with the platforms and the ways you interact with levels. There are moving platforms. There are places where you slide. There's ice. There are speed gates that boost you. And the goal is to get to the end of each level as fast as you can while collecting all the stars in the level. At the end of the levels, you're graded based on your completion time. 
You can get an S rank if you are absolutely perfect with the time. I only managed to get one S rank, Ooh. and that was after replaying a level a couple times just so I could see how hard it was to get an S rank. And actually in Tori 3D, I got no S ranks. It only happened in Tori 2. Um, Tori 2 has a bunch of hidden CDs in the stages, which I don't know what those do because I didn't find them all. cool. They are cool. I couldn't find them all, and I didn't want to look up a guide. Um, I found a couple. I don't know what they do, but uh, those weren't in Tori 3D. Okay. So that's kind of like an additional completion level for Tori 2. Uh, collecting all the stars, I think, unlocks a new character. Um, at the end of each game, I had collected all the stars along the way, and in each game I unlocked a character called MacBat, who is a mascot from Cyactro's previous game, MacBat 64, which is a collectathon 3D platformer, very much like Ukulele, which we'll Ooh. review as a featured game next episode. So MacBat makes an appearance. Tori 2 has another character that I don't know how to unlock. Maybe it's through those CDs. Um, the characters have different uh, stats and like abilities that the base character doesn't have. These games also have a few spooky elements Whoa, that, you don't, what? that you don't expect, and they're not in the trailers. There's this demon angel of sorts that looks really out of place and haunts your journey in a couple ways. All right. Um, and every so often, innocent things will be made to look really twisted and demented. And the game doesn't call attention to it too much. It just sort of happens. And then you you keep playing this cute 3D platformer. But it's nowhere on the level of like DDLC. Right. Where the whole experience just gets completely like hijacked mm -hmm. it, none that definitely doesn't reach that level it just has like little pinches of this stuff here and there um tori 2 also has three bonus levels that are more collectathon in nature kind of like macbat 64 and another game called super kiwi 64 oh cool um that just recently released that i'll talk about um after my overall thoughts on this but um, yeah, more collectathon and actually holiday themed in nature. Um, so you can play those and get a little different taste for what Tori could have been. That's really the intention for those levels is so that Cyactro could communicate like, hey, this is what I was um, spitballing around for Tori, but it ended up being how MacBat and Super Kiwi 64 ended up being. What I liked about Tori too, as a 3D platformer where you're just kind of racing through these levels for a couple minutes at a time. The strongest thing this game has to offer is great controls. The nice. gameplay Perfect. is very strong. In a platformer, you're looking at two things in a platformer. You're looking at how the thing feels to play, to jump, to move around, to sprint, whatever. Vital. And then everything else. <laughs> yep. It's kind of like those two <laughs> categories. And anytime we've reviewed a platformer on this show, um, usually if a platformer could be improved, it's usually because the tightness of the controls just isn't there. They could be improved a little bit. The game would be elevated to a new level if the controls felt better, mm -hmm. if it felt better to just have the locomotion that I want. There is great locomotion in, in the Tori game. Heckers, in both of them. yeah. Um, jumping and movement feel excellently tight. Sprinting and double jumping feel perfectly tuned. You feel like you're in control of this bird. And this has some of the best feeling ice in any game that I've played that's Yo, a platformer ice with ice. Is terrible. Ice is a thing I dread in any platformer, even if it's something like Mario, you know, something that 
you know is is AAA and and has a lot of attention and detail. I just don't like ice. Uh, but this game has a slipperiness with its ice where you feel like you're in control and you can anticipate what will happen and you can easily course correct. Wow. So it feels more fair than a lot of ice that I've uh, encountered in games. Super specific praise, but uh, a kind of praise I don't get to have a lot. Uh, the game has a very cute aesthetic and a very cute soundscape. There's a really nice boing sound when you jump. There are little quirks like when you go into lava levels, like the Pyro Palace, your bird wears a little cowboy hat, but only in the lava levels. I don't know why, but it's a little thing that's there, a little detail like yeah. that. Yeah, you know, cowboys, lava. Yeah, and then in the ice levels, I think your bird wears earmuffs or something like that, something more fitting, you know, for ice. Um, each stage has a distinct visual style and types of platforming. Those lava stages like Torch Tower are about precise platforming and sometimes climbing upwards. But then those space levels like Dash Dimension, they're all about boosting and going fast. Mm. So the game definitely has variety with what it's asking you to do. I love that. The spooky elements are really quirky and unexpected. I'm not sure they fit, and I'm not sure they're committed to enough if they want to have this in the games, but it also adds to the identity of the Tori games. So there's that. The last stage in Tori 2 includes a boss fight that's a really good challenge too. The last game didn't have as strong as a finish. In fact, it didn't have a boss fight at all. It, I don't actually remember how it finished. It was just kind of like a um, an amalgamation of a bunch of ideas. But here in Tori 2, I think it has a great finish. And the game is truly short, which is great for when you want a small dose of fun. Um, but it's also so much fun that I wish I could have played more. And that's kind of where I get into the dislikes. I wish this game was like twice as long. Mm -hmm. Only nine levels. Each look for the levels. So like the, the palm tree place, uh, the ice idea, the lava idea, the space idea. There are two levels per aesthetic. Gotcha. And then there's the final level that has the boss encounter. So you really only have those nine levels and then it's done. By the end, when I unlocked MacBat for either finishing the game or collecting all the stars, I'm not sure what it is. I had no desire to replay all the levels with MacBat. I just wanted more levels that I hadn't seen yet. And I did have those bonus levels that were collect-a-thon levels. Those were fun to do. Um, and that ended up making me wish more of Tori was in that style. The collect-a-thon mm. stuff they're doing in here is really good. Uh, I just wish there was more. And then um, because the game is so short, it does end up being a little forgettable. Um, it's very fun in the moment, but I really haven't thought back too much. So overall, Tori 2 has more detail and better ideas than Tori 3D. It feels a little more polished. Uh, just like its predecessor, though, it feels great to play. It has a bite-sized amount of fun, offers different kinds of uh, collect-a-thon platforming in those bonus stages that I appreciated that they really didn't have to offer, but they did. It is so brief and inconsequential that I just wish there was more to it, though. So I'm going to give it a positive score of 7.5 out of 10. And it is playable on PC through Steam, which is how I played it, and Nintendo Switch. I want to make another note that Tori uh, 2 and Tori 3D are each a dollar to buy on Steam, mm. which I think is an incredible value. I think it's some of the best value on Steam. If I'm not mistaken, that's also the price on Switch. So I highly recommend if you have a dollar to burn and an hour to spare and you want to get some 3D platforming going on that has really great movement and great controls, uh, you cannot go wrong with the Tori games. Excellent. Wow. Um, I don't know if I have any any questions. Like, Yeah, it's straightforward. It's yeah. very straightforward. 
The only thing that's off kilter or maybe might make you curious are some of those spooky weird elements which don't even make their way into the trailer so it's hard to reference them yeah but it's just off kilter things that surprise you every now and then it's like whoa what that's in this game yeah and then it goes away like oh okay i guess i guess (laughs) one question i do have you mentioned that there's a boss fight and you mentioned that this spooky stuff changes the shape of certain things are there like are there like enemies in this world because most of what i saw is just like Speed, jumping, and collecting. Yeah, there are enemies that hurt you, and there are checkpoints, so you like can restart if you fall off a ledge or if an enemy kills you, um, but you're not first and foremost meant to hurt the enemies and destroy them like you would in maybe like Mario, where you can jump on a Goomba's head. Right. You're mostly, it's mostly intended that you go around them. You speed around them, you avoid them. Um, or there's like lava shooting up and you have to avoid the lava as you're jumping through mm-hmm. all of the platforms. Um, there are some power-ups you get where you boost and that makes you sort of invulnerable. And if you run into an enemy, you destroy them. And so the game plays with that in a few places where you are defeating enemies, but it's all in the purpose of getting somewhere faster. So, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, extending off of the the spooky spooky angel demon guy... <laughs> When he changes the shape of, I presume, enemies, do do they become more powerful, more aggressive, or are oh, they no, just he's not, visually different? I didn't notice any enemies changing. It's innocent things in the environment that don't impact your gameplay too much. It's like decorations oh. in the levels. Uh, there's a level, and I honestly can't remember if it was Tori 3D or Tori 2, but there is a level where there are a bunch of either suns or clouds in the sky, and they just get like these really demonic faces on them, and they're all watching you as you're platforming for a minute or two. Oh, and my gosh. It's like really off-putting and scary, <laughs> and you don't know what will happen. That's really what's going on is aesthetics are changing. Um, the character of a cloud or a sun is changing. You know, okay. It's not actually evolving any enemies and making them harder to kill or harder to surpass, you know? Okay. Yeah. Well, heck, I mean, this, I love, I've been in a big, like, low-poly mood for the last few years. Haven't been able to scratch that itch very much, honestly. Um, so I'll probably check these out. Uh, I also hope that there's more so that I can see this meta thread of this angel demon yeah. progress. Yeah. Because it, it seems like, in my head, this is like, oh, this is a natural part of Tori's world. He doesn't care. Yeah. But, you know, it's certainly strange to us. And it's, yeah, the story is not very specific. It's 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 kind of open to interpretation. It's kind of very lightly placed into the game. There's not really any dialogue to read, so... It's really up to your interpretation. Cool. Um, they Tory games came out both in 2021 with a one-two punch. So hopefully there's another one. But the developer has been working on Super Kiwi 64, which just released. It's a collect-a-thon platformer, and it's out now for $3. And it's very much inspired by the games that our next featured game after this episode was inspired by like it's inspired by banjo kazooie um it's inspired by donkey kong 64 and mario 64 i'm interested to play that one i've heard that one controls really nicely too i think that's first and foremost what cyactro goes for when he develops these things well if you're listening special reserve games i would take all of these on a switch cart collection yes just saying there you go 
Um, so those are our secret games, Watam and Tori 2. Let's move on to our review of Return of the Obra Dinn. It is our featured game. So, Return of the Obra Dinn is a 2018 mystery logic puzzle game. Some might call it an insurance adventure. <laughs> it was some would, but some, some would. should. <laughs> some would, but I will not. But I'll mention that some would. <laughs> and you decide for yourself if you want to be one of those people. Anyway, it was later ported to consoles in 2019. It was developed by one person, Lucas Pope, which is pretty impressive. Uh, we've had a couple of these solo developers and we've we definitely know about some of these solo developers that haven't made their appearances yet on Underplayed, but this is one of those Bennett Foddy guys, <laughs> you know, one of those uh, Ben Esposito guys, yeah. you know, uh, published by 3909, which is a Japanese publisher. I was doing some research and Lucas Pope lives in Japan, so that kind of makes sense. I'm going to read the game synopsis from the Nintendo Switch storefront because it has the most complete game synopsis. And this is the longest game synopsis I've ever read up to this point and uh, pay attention because this includes like the story set up and everything. So this will save me time in the stuff that I wrote down uh, that I need to tell the audience. So quote in 1802, the merchant ship Oberdin set out from London for the Orient with over 200 tons of trade goods. Six months later, it hadn't met its rendezvous point at the Cape of Good Hope and was declared lost at sea. Early this morning, of October 14th, 1807, the Obra Dinn drifted into port at Falmouth with damaged sails and no visible crew. As insurance investigator for the East India Company's London office, dispatch immediately to Falmouth, find means to board the ship, and prepare an assessment of damages. Return of the Obra Dinn is a first-person mystery adventure based on exploration and logical deduction. End quote. Ah. <laughs> So, that wasn't as long as I thought it was going to be. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. So Return of the Oberdin is a simple game on the surface. It does require more setup than that. Uh, so we will set it up. We're not going to spoil anything because it is a mystery game. We won't uh, spoil any solutions or anything like that. Um, but to describe solutions in this game would actually be pretty challenging. You'd need to probably be looking at the game while someone was spoiling how to solve something to get a spoiler from it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I think that's accurate. You could spoil some of the visuals that you see in this game. Like some of the things that happened to the Oberdin could be spoiled. So we will avoid those. Yes. Uh, we'll talk vaguely about them maybe, but um, Return of the Oberdin is played in the first person perspective. It has a one bit graphic style where everything is either white or black. Um, have you ever played a game like that with, with a one bit style? I mean, we had... Like, you know, I'm young enough to have had those, like, Macintosh computers in our school when schools were starting to get computer labs and stuff. Um, I don't remember specific games. Yeah. And we had one of those green scale ones at home, but we only used, like, an art program on that. Right. So, yes, but I don't remember them. So, this is very much trying to attempt that style very purposefully, and it kind of fits into the style of this game, which is... You're an insurance investigator who needs to assess the ship, and you're figuring out causes of death and identities of people who were on the ship. So at the start, someone who was on board the Oberdin sends you a book and a stopwatch called the Memento Mortem, 
which is Latin for remember death. And the stopwatch allows you the power of seeing the moment when someone or something died. The Obra Dinn has shown up after years of disappearance with none of its 51 crew members or nine passengers on board. And a ferryman takes you to the ship, you climb on board, and you investigate a pile of bones on the deck, which kicks off the first death scene. In each of these death scenes, the stopwatch lets you see the exact moment someone died, frozen in time. And you can walk around this scene and you can examine who was there, what they were doing. And in total, the game has 10 chapters, each with multiple scenes that build this larger story. And you're usually discovering the chapters in reverse order, starting with what happened last, building to what happened first. And as the insurance investigator, you're identifying each and every person, how they died, and if they were killed by someone else, who killed them. This is all information you're filling in to the book that you were given, which constantly updates with drawings and maps. There is a long list of options for filling in each person's status. Uh, you might discover someone lived and that they're alive, and you put in uh, where they're currently living. Um, or if they died, you might say that they were axed, burned, clawed, clubbed, crushed, decapitated, drowned, eaten, electrocuted, expired, exploded, fell, froze, illness, killed with a sword, knifed, poisoned, shot, speared, spiked, strangled, struck, suicide, torn apart uh, as another option. So <laughs> Just a few. Just to name a few. So lots of ways that you can identify the fate of people. And as a result, you can't brute force your way through the solutions. You can't just sure can. guess between three things. <laughs> it's uh, There are many dozens of, of possible answers to things. Usually a cause of death is apparent, but the tricky part is the other half of what you're figuring out, the identity of the person. Mm -hmm. And you're given a list of 60 people with all their names, their place of origin, and their role on the ship. And separately in the book, there are these illustrations. There was an artist on the ship who drew every crew member and passenger in this group shot. And anytime you can zoom into a person in one of these memories, and it will reveal their likeness in that illustration. So you can start to draw connections to who people are, who they hang out with, what they wear, things like that. And then as you're putting in identities and making your best guess at how they died, the logbook will confirm uh, like who people are and how they died in groups of three. When you have three entries that are fully correct, the game congratulates you and it will fill this information in permanently. Um, and until then, you're free to change your entries at will. You can go in and say someone was uh, clubbed, uh, but then you might find out, oh, actually, I think they were crushed by something that fell. So I'm going to say that they were crushed. And you're free to just change that information until the game knows that you have three correct answers. Then it will lock in the three that uh, you got right. You're not only discovering 60 individual stories, you're also discovering the order of events in a larger general plot. And as you progress, more parts of the ship open up with more dramatic and surprising details emerging as time goes on. Again, not spoiling anything, but <laughs> um, that is about all I would say to uh, set up the game. It is probably in a few escalator rides. It's not an elevator pitch. <laughs> so Disco Cola, um, I didn't do a ton of research on this game outside of what Lucas Pope did to create this game, which was everything. I mean, this is one person doing the programming, the music, the arts, the everything for, I think it was over four years. 
I'm um, surprised it only took that long. Yeah, um, because there's a lot of interconnectedness, a lot of cause and effects. There's the broad story. There are 60 individual stories. I am not the strongest when it comes to like a murder mystery. I'm, I am I usually have a tough time following mysteries when it's a movie or a show. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes me a, a while to process the information. So I'm usually bad with one mystery. Here we have 60 mysteries yeah. <laughs> going on, <laughs> all in concert. So I very much reacted to the game in a different way than I would with a traditional murder mystery. But I'm curious, how did you interact with Return of the Oprah Den? What are your thoughts on this game? Well, uh, general thoughts, um, I was very excited to play it. I've, I've been looking forward to uh, nailing this one down for a while because I love that visual art style. Like just in general, I sort of love this like modern retro vibe that a lot of games have as a whole. So like the low poly games that we're talking about, I love that there are so many more new low poly games. This is sort of the same thing. Um, so I've I've been looking forward to playing it for a while, and I think this game is incredibly intelligent and well-constructed. Um, I love the idea of a puzzle game that gives you all of the information that you need to discover the specific details about several dozens of people. Not only that, but it gives you that information in a great number of ways. You get your visual representations of everyone in the in the form of uh, illustrations, um, but you also get the names of everyone written out in the manifest, and you get the interactive audiovisual snapshots of handfuls of people at a given time. But in addition to that audiovisual interaction, the audio section of the audiovisual pulls a surprising amount of weight. Yes. Uh, in in helping you figure out things with impressive audio design, namely in the sense of creating a distinction of distance. So when someone is further away from the action, they're softer. They're softer. Yeah. And so when you actually get to explore the visual part of that, you can begin to pinpoint based on the audio design who was standing where, and that does help you. Yeah. in some cases, decide who some people are. Just for a little more context, because I did leave this out, before each memory of a death, there is a dialogue moment where you're listening to what happened. Um, usually it's two people talking to each other. Other other times it's like a commotion of multiple people talking. It might be a very intense moment where someone's about to be executed. It might be two people just having a conversation. It might be somebody who is sick and is about to die. But you're listening to them and you do not see anything on screen other than the words. So that's another another like important distinction is the only moment from the death you're seeing is the freeze frame of mm-hmm. the moment they died. Yep. Um, so yeah. Incredible audio design, just in general. Like, I'm not going to talk about the music much, but the music's also great. So just great audio design, a lot of great sound effects, just in passive walking on the boat kind of stuff, too. Um, In general, I'm a little over the trope of getting stories in reverse starting at the end. Mm. But this one's a little bit different. And the way this story is delivered is pretty compelling and goes to places I would have never expected. Um, So I think that's really cool. I actually liked getting the story in reverse this time. And you're not you're getting like all the sections of a chapter in reverse order, but you don't get all the chapters in the book in reverse order or in like chronological order. Right. You get chapter I think nine or ten first, and then you get you'll get chapter five, and then you'll get chapter three. You know, you, it's not exactly in that order, but it's kind of random. Yeah. And that that allows you to experience the story in a couple ways. 
Um, I love that you can pick this game up in short bursts because all the information that you access is recorded and it saves after each scene that you watch. Um, however, I think if you took too much time in between those short bursts, uh, you, you better be pretty capable of remembering what you were thinking before you quit. Because um, while everything is recorded, you do lose a little bit of that visual and auditory memory, or maybe you had one of those names that you're trying to keep in your mind, you know, at the front of your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take too long in between play sessions, maybe you'll forget what you were even exploring. So it can't hurt at all to take extra notes outside of the game. Don't be afraid to do it. Uh, we've played a lot of different puzzle games at this point, but we haven't quite played one that's like those word logic puzzles you do in school. Um, and as it turns out, those are actually kind of fun when you aren't required to do one. So if you're doing <laughs> one by choice, it's a little fun. Um, but I wish that I would have had a little bit more time. Ultimately, I only solved about a third of the puzzle before I had to start consulting a guide. Oh. I got stuck pretty early. Gotcha. Okay. And I think it's probably a pretty good thing that I did start consulting a guide because not only are there quite a few things I don't think I ever would have figured out, but there are also things that I was very confident about that I, that turned out to be wrong. So I'm going to go through a couple examples of, of each one of those. Um, the first thing that I feel like I never would have figured out, there's a good handful of people that share the same fate not only do I not recall hearing that fate mentioned or even implicated, and I, I went through like every scene probably three or four times. Mm. I don't recall that being mentioned or implicated, but most of the people that share that fate aren't mentioned by name anywhere and are barely more than just like background characters most of the time. So I can only assume that I might have missed something significant. Um, and I know that when you boot up the game, it says... A lot of this will be through process of elimination. Yeah. Um, but there are just a few too many in this pool of people where like guess and check doesn't really feel like it's a valid option or warranted, okay. I would say. Um, so I don't know if I would have figured those out. A couple of fates I was very confident about um, in one person's death scene. Visually, they appeared to be bitten so I put their fate down as being eaten. Apparently, this individual was being strangled, uh, which is not what it looked like to me. So I had mm, that wrong. Uh, I had that wrong until I started going through the guide. Um, in another scene, someone is dying and asks, where is my Frenchman? And, and someone replies that he was torn apart. But there's only like one person that very visually, distinctly, and explicitly is torn apart. That guy's not the Frenchman, but I had him as the Frenchman through like most of the game. Yeah, that's one of the red herrings of this game. And that's very intentional because you're supposed to be picking up all these clues everywhere. When someone says, oh, he was torn apart, you immediately know who they must be referring to. But sometimes you get clues about people whose death you do not see in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. You get clues to people who died sort of off screen, if you will. Um, that you don't have a memory of. So a tricksy move, Lucas Pope, a tricksy move. There's a scene I'm thinking of specifically where someone looks like they're succumbing to a type of cause of death, but then in another memory, they're killed in another way. Oh, yeah. And it's obfuscated. And I needed to go back to that one two or three times 
before I figured out, oh, this is a trick. I, I was led to believe that it was this cause of death. It's actually this cause of death because of this other thing that happened. In I another think I, yeah, I think I know which one yeah, you're talking so, about now. Yeah, it's very intentional, but um, can be frustrating because at a certain point, guess and check doesn't always help you there. So anyways, all that boils down to uh, things that are meant to be clear cut, which I guess you said that this one's a, a red herring, but like mm. other ones, like visually with this art style, maybe it can be hard to tell sometimes. Um, like I mentioned with the person that wasn't eaten, it's things that aren't, are meant to be clear cut aren't always clear. Um, and so that would be something that I don't like as much about this game. Can um, I can I say one more thing about that? Yeah. I think the visual style, while really cool and is meant to make you focus on the straight facts of what's going on, I think that's what the intention for the one-bit style, sometimes it can muddle things when you only have those two colors. Mm -hmm. For example, a cause of death in this game is burning. And when that cause of death happens, I don't know what that is because I think I needed more color to understand what was going on. And the source of the burning was really weird. Yeah. So there are times where I think the style of graphics is meant to make you like, just look at the straight facts and understand like, Hey, this is very clearly like black and white pun intended. This is what <laughs> happened. But then that black and white, that one bit style can limit what you're seeing too. Yeah. Um, or just make things open to interpretation. A right. Little bit. Yeah. Well, and, and some causes of death are very like similar to like, What's the difference between spiked and speared? Like yes. you figure that out eventually, yeah. but. And to the game's credit, Lucas Pope did program multiple causes of death to be acceptable. Oh. So there are some people where you can say someone was, see, I, I can't give an example because I'll spoil something, but <laughs> um, there are multiple acceptable answers okay. basically, because I think Lucas Pope understood that you could make an argument either way. Mm -hmm. So he programmed both of them to work or maybe two or three uh, versions that work. Okay. Well, that is good to know at least. Um, but anyways, this game officially has humbled me. I do feel <laughs> stupid. Um, maybe if I was able to give myself more time, I may have been able to like use the glossary a bit to help me more. Cause I feel like maybe there's some clues that I could have extrapolated from using that part of what is provided to you. Um, but I explored everything nearly like four times and I barely used the glossary. So I'm wondering if there was something there, but I just, I couldn't figure it out. Maybe if I had more time, but maybe I'm just not smart enough. And then the last thing I guess I would say is that this game doesn't really offer much in replay value once you've solved it. Or in my case, if you used a guide to solve it. Um, Cause once you do, that's it. Like maybe if you give yourself a couple years, you'll forget most of it. Um, but I know that there's at least two fates that I'll never forget mm. uh, because <laughs> I I felt cheated with the answer, so I will never forget oh, them. Gotcha. But despite many moments of frustration and ultimately shame, I still think this game's incredibly impressive, intelligently constructed, and I'm either not smart enough or not patient enough to do it justice for myself. But I do know that this is still something special. I want to give this game a 7.5. Very nice. 7.5 for Disco Cola. Um, yeah, you bring up a lot of great points. Uh, you'll hear some of the same points from me. But overall, after 
a very disheartening first 90 minutes where I only got three fates correct in an hour and a half and I felt like I just couldn't turn a corner and I was struggling with the best way to tackle information and how to read my logbook and whether I should keep discovering uh, scenes or try to figure out what I have already seen. I uh, ended up discovering a puzzle game that I love that is one of my favorite games we've played for Underplayed. Wow. And a game that I just devoured in about 72 hours. This game was what I, uh, all I could think about for a couple days, and I loved it. I loved Return of the Obra Dinn. Um, I love that this game requires attention to so many kinds of detail. You brought up the audio stuff and the spatial awareness. I didn't even think about that. I didn't use that in any of my deductions as far as like, hey, that person sounds like they're far away. They must be one of these side characters that's far away from the person who died. Uh, that didn't even come into my mind, but that is, that's an amazing detail that you picked up. But uh, there, are, there are other things like noticing who people hang out with, noticing uh, stuff in the environment that pertains to someone. Noticing what people wear. When you start to realize that a certain group of people wear a certain kind of clothing, it changes your perspective about who they hang out with or who they might be. Um, I think the game is really chilling in its simplicity when it's talking about all these death scenes. It's capturing these horrifying deaths. These are grot <laughs> like often grotesque, horrifying deaths in the most efficient frame possible with each memory. And it's this complete depiction of action and reaction of cause and effect. And I'm so amazed by that, by the cinematic style that these deaths are happening. There's a lot of action in the frame, even though you're walking around this scene that's frozen in time. You don't see any of these people move their mouths. You don't see any of them take a step. You're just seeing the moment they died. And it feels so expressive with how it is blocking the characters, their facial expressions, um, what you imagine they were doing the moment before they died. It's just incredibly set up and designed. Um, some of my favorite moments from this season are when I solved sets of three fates. When uh, the game stops and it <laughs> carves the information permanently into the logbook. It's very satisfying. So simple yet so satisfying. Um, you get the little music drop. Uh, it flips to each page and it shows you which piece of information you got right. Oh, and um, sometimes it happened because I knew exactly what the fates and um, identities were. Sometimes it was because I was kind of between three options for how someone died or what their identity was. So I tried all three and then it locks in and I just feel so accomplished. Love that in this game. It's it's I love that loop, too, because each time you get something right you know you're getting a clue to something else because if one person is someone, another person can't be that someone. Mm. So if you were between two identities for uh, two people, you fill in one and it locks that in. Now you've got a clue to your next step. And so that was so intoxicating to me because that was how I got progress is that cascade, that domino effect of getting sets of three right that led me to more clues through process of elimination. I love that stuff. Um, the time-bending storytelling uh, feels so fresh. Combining the knowledge from the ship present day to the vision I'm in and then other visions I've seen is a mind-bend unlike any other mystery game. I had so many aha moments of 
seeing memories for the first time, and then re-examining them and discovering that I was completely misunderstanding a cause of death. Uh, progression of unlocking areas of the ship, I feel like, prevents this feeling of being overwhelmed too. Mm. The game only lets you access the main deck at first. Once you see some memories, you can go down to uh, the gun deck yeah, and then uh, the Orlop deck and then and the cargo hold. If I may, I didn't even like notice that those were unlocking until I got to probably the, the third level. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, well, I, couldn't, I couldn't get down here before. Yes. Yeah. The game is very smartly like guiding you, but you feel like you're in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great game design right there. Generally, the logbook is at the heart of the gameplay because it's what you're flipping back to over and over again. Um, you're going in there. You're examining the order of events. You're examining people's faces. You're swapping in information to see if it works. And at the heart of it, it feels like that logbook is on my side. It fills in information in a clear and consistent way. Every time I see one of those memories, it shows me the map of of where the ship was. It uh, also plays nice music there too. But um, every time there's something new to fill in, it shows me directly. It flips to that chapter and that page. It shows it. So I appreciate how forward and how clear that information is presented. The music is amazing. It's atmospheric and feels period. It's this maritime, classical, almost shanty-like music that I just never grew tired of. You hear some of the tracks multiple times, but they actually intensify some of the drama of what's going on. When you're listening to those dialogue moments before a scene, it's very dramatic. And then it will cut to the moment that the death is happening, and you're hit with this piece of orchestral music that just adds this weight to what's going on. The music is so awesome in this game. <laughs> I love um, hearing you talk about music. I've been playing the soundtrack outside of the game, like when I drive around. Nice. I love the music of Return of the Oberdin. Again, all done by Lucas Pope. Um, I, you know, I don't think this is a perfect game. I don't think any game is perfect. So here's what I disliked. Uh, some of it you talked about. Re-experiencing memories has certain pain points for me. Um, like when I need to open the map to find locations uh. of where... Memories are. I hate that. And then I have to scroll through all the all the levels of the ship to figure that out. Um, I wish there was a run or a walk faster button <laughs> at a certain point because by the time I had seen all 60 memories, you know, I didn't have close to that many solutions figured out. So I had to revisit a bunch of stuff. So just being able to do that stuff faster and easier would be appreciated. Um, I never got fully used to controlling the logbook, like opening it up and mm. flipping to the pages. There was some trial and error with like which buttons did what, and I, I'd never got it solidified in my mind. That might be more of a me thing. I was a little confused at first when you find a corpse and that corpse shows you a memory. You watch that scene, and then that scene directly links to other memories and kind of reveals more bodies on the ship. I think it's the bodies that don't have any like material left on the ship for you to look at. But that was a little disorienting at first because it's like, wait, what is this leading me to? That that smoke effect of leading me to the next scene. I was I was kind of confused about that. It took me a little bit to get in uh, get into the flow with that. I agree. It can't easily be replayed um, unless maybe I wait like three years. I might want to replay this someday. The hidden chapter that the game keeps from you is chapter eight. The game reminds you over and over again that this chapter will be revealed once you 
return home with all of your solutions. I thought chapter eight was a little anticlimactic compared to my expectations. I felt like the game was building to this just WTF mind altering uh, revelation in chapter eight. And there were some things that were cool to see, but nothing that blew my mind. You know what I mean? Because by then you have experienced nine other chapters. So you basically know the whole story. There's nothing that can be recontextualized in an insane way at that point. But it felt like the game was building up to something crazy. And uh, I just felt like Bargain was a little anticlimactic compared to that expectation. Um, Minor knit, there's a achievement slash trophy called Captain Did It, where you're just supposed to go into the logbook and accuse the captain of killing everybody, which is far from the truth. (laughs) Um, But in order to do that, you need to do it on a save file where you have no information locked in. And I didn't know this going in. So you actually have to devote yourself to sitting through all the scenes again, 60 times. It takes at least two and a half or three hours to do. And I did do it, but it felt like an achievement that was trolling me for wanting to get 100% (laughs) on the achievement. So overall, Return of the Oberdin is a singular experience that hooked me. The deduction process was intoxicating. I could not stop thinking about it when I was playing it. No two people will figure out the mysteries in the same order. Um, The game was a little scary and befuddling at times, but it was one I ended up falling in love with. So I think it's this season's Outer Wilds for me. Oh, wow. But I'm going to give it a higher score than I gave to Outer Wilds. I'm going to give it a 9.5. Called it. Out of 10. Wow. You called it? I called it. I mean, I wouldn't have expected that before the episode, but- once you start talking, once about I started it, talking about it, yeah. I love this game. It is in my top ten indie games now. I think it's at, it's at number nine between. Um, I think it's unpacking at number eight, and Hades at number ten. Wow, you like this more than Hades? Wow. I mean, when you get to that level, though, you might ask me next week, and I might flip flop. But yeah. Oh my god. So, <laughs> um, there's that. <laughs> you talked about looking at the glossary. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting because I did take like 10 minutes to look at the glossary and I felt like it helped me out a lot. Okay. Because it defines things that I didn't know. But um, it also made me think about this game actually rewards you if you have outside knowledge that you bring mm-hmm. into the game. If you have a particular knowledge about the British Royal Navy, um, if you know about outfits uh, of that time, of of the 19th century Navy uh, and and even like what roles on ships mean, um, there are some roles that I just didn't know, yeah. and they define all that stuff in the glossary in game, which is nice. But I have a coworker who loves this kind of story and this kind of time period. He has actually dressed as uh, the British Royal Navy before for like festivals and stuff. He loves like costumes and Ren fairs and stuff. Mm. He's also a history buff. Yeah, he loves. Um, the United Kingdom and English uh, history and stuff. So this, I actually recommended to him. I said, this will be right down your alley and you will probably have an advantage most players don't have because you know, if a character wears this hat, they've got to be a first mate or, you know, if they're wearing this shirt, oh, they've got to be like a topman or something, Mm -hmm. you know? So um, I thought that was fascinating that you could go in with an advantage, but the game also helps catch you up in that glossary. And so that's one thing I would recommend people check out when they first open this game. I know 
you don't want to feel like you're doing homework at the start of the game, but <laughs> it really did help me out because costuming or uh, outfits and stuff like that, that's a big clue. That's something I never even sort of paid attention to. The only time I remember looking inside of one room and there were two pieces of clothing hanging up inside a room and they were like very distinct. Like it felt like I was supposed to notice them, but I, I wasn't patient enough to draw that toward any lines. Yes. And I don't remember the name of that cabin, like, but you can look on the map and you can see, hey, that's the cabin that these two people share. And so if you see those two people and they're wearing those two pieces of clothing, you know that they're this role. Most of what I used that kind of clue for was if I figured out someone was, let's say, a topman um, through another means, I would examine their clothing and then I'd realize, oh, there are like seven other people who are topmen. And they're likely going to be wearing this clothing, so that helps narrow it down. It doesn't tell me who, like which of the seven people are who, but it narrows it down so that, you know, if it's between two people for a certain name, if I know they're wearing Topman clothing, it probably isn't a name that isn't a Topman, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was crippled with indecision and confusion in those first, like, 90 minutes. And I only solved three fates, but the next day, you know, I slept on it a little bit. I wasn't going into my second play session super enthused, but then once I started figuring it out and like how I need to examine and observe every detail, I ended up playing six hours in one night. Oh, wow. And I got 39 fates done in one sitting. Yeah, I didn't Um, even get close. Yeah, so (laughs) I got into this domino effect of like figuring out someone, deducing who another person is by process of elimination and so on. And... um, It's not only clothes and the dialogue, but it's also physical appearance and accents in the dialogue scenes. Did you find yourself like listening to dialogues and uh, like uh, accents? Well, I I relied a little, just a touch more on like the written text if it's written in a different language. Mm. Um, I feel like the things that you're supposed to generalize about someone's physical appearance didn't really translate super well with the exception of a few characters which were very obviously from you know this part of the world right. or whatever right and then the they formosans yeah and, yeah those people were name dropped anyway and so those became pretty easy to figure out right. eventually yeah. um but um generally I, I didn't generalize based on like physical appearance i i did a couple um accents and those are given to you i think very very intentionally because people with those accents only show up maybe once or twice yes. in the logbook. And yes. so there's like one person who's French. Yeah. For instance. I don't know that you ever listen to that particular person no. talk, but yeah, it does like very smartly give you it's like like, pe- like the there's a Scottish individual. Yes. I remember that's the one I think that's I really it. leaned in that's on. That's it. Yeah. Um lots of people have uh talked about how this is kind of like Sudoku meets murder mystery. <laughs> yeah. Where uh like in a Sudoku puzzle, you know that a box could either be like an eight or a nine. You might not know which one it is, but at least you know it's not one through seven. Mm-hmm. That's what that accent thing is doing. Yep. Um, so then you have to find another clue to help figure that out. Um, let's see. Yeah, I, I started like examining context clues like who people were hanging out with too. So like all the mates have uh, stewards, I think they're called. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are four mates. And if you figure out the identity of a mate, you can figure out like who their steward is by like 
who are they hanging out with all the time? Yeah. A steward would follow alongside yeah. their, you know. I only picked up on that, like, after I'd already, like, essentially when I was doing the Captain Did It uh, yeah. playthrough, I was like, oh, I would have been able to figure that one out now, now that <laughs> yes. I've noticed that. And there's someone I figured out simply from the illustration of just looking at the artist, mm -hmm. uh, the artist rendering, because that particular person doesn't really give any clues in any of the memories. It's really just what you're looking at in the illustration that was drawn. Um, that's how I figured out someone. So, uh, and I will admit, I ended up doing a trial and error and guess, guess and check at the midway point quite a bit. When I got through about like 40 memories scene, you know, I was kind of between four people for a certain spot and I just tried them all. And so I did have luck there. Mm -hmm. um, as you went along, you're talking about don't take too much time between your short play sessions if you do it in bite-sized chunks because you'll forget stuff. But as you're going along, did you try to like unlock everything possible that you could before unlocking another memory? Or were you just seeing all the memories and then going back in time and trying to figure stuff out from there? Or was it a mixture? Um, well, I didn't I, I it's a mixture kind of. So I tried to keep a lot of things in my mind as I was going, but I didn't go on purpose, anyways, back to old memories before I started watching new ones that I had just unlocked. Gotcha. There were a couple times where I like didn't realize I opened a new section of the ship. And so I was like starting to go back to old stuff. So most of the time I was trying to figure things out as I went, but I wasn't necessarily revisiting visual memories. When I was going through all these memories and sometimes revisiting, there were a few individuals who frustrated me because every time I saw them, I thought they were giving me a clue as to who they were. And I thought, oh, this is it. I know who they are. And then I was wrong. <laughs> and that happened multiple times with someone I will call the tattoo man. Yeah. The tattoo man gave me a ton of trouble. Did you have somebody who gave you trouble? Yes. So there's this person that we see in the very first memory, and he shows up in tons of memories. Yes. He's got a hat on. Yes. Hat man. Hat man. Yes. I I spent one whole play session just trying to track him on, He's hard. on the memories. And I, I still never got it. Like, that was one of the guidelines. Oh, ones. okay. Yeah. I, oh, I wish I could talk about this without spoiling, but there is a memory- I was I was in a similar boat because I, I looked at every other memory than the one that best clues you into who he is first. Mm -hmm. And I was so frustrated with Hatman. Um, then I found the moment where it tells you, but you have to make an inference mm -hmm. based on a visual clue. I think I know which one you're talking about. That the Hatman is doing, and that ended up being correct. Yep. It seemed like a long shot, though. Yeah. So if you were skeptical of it and skipped on, I wouldn't blame you for that. But I looked online at uh, some comments on this game on different videos, and Hatman was a common frustration for people. For me, it was Tattoo Man. There are some chilling moments, I think, when you're seeing some of these like moments of death frozen in time. Uh, causes of death are very surprising in this game because of what happens to this ship. Uh but I was wondering if there are any chilling moments that will stick in your mind that are you can explain as non-spoilery as possible. <laughs> uh, okay. I will say that decapitation is 
a mode of death that is correct for somebody in this game. And just like that whole chapter, I would say was very shocking to me because it I couldn't yes. comprehend visually what was happening for a while. Mm. Um, but ultimately that one ended up being my favorite chapter just because of just what it was and the gravity mm-hmm. and just like almost the hopelessness of being stuck in that situation. Yeah. Like there's there's a lot of really big situations both in size and um, uh, severity, but this one's like smaller in size, but I feel like it's deadly. It is. And you get the sense that all of the memories in that string of events probably happened in like two minutes. Yeah. But you're forced to sit there for, (laughs) you know, 10 minutes at a time looking at one memory, trying to figure everything out. And I think that intensifies it because you're forced to just look at it at something that happened in just seconds. Um, so I think the game knows that it's doing that and it really leans into that for some of those more shocking moments. Um, for me, uh, it was during one of those really climactic moments. There was a group of people who I thought were safe. I thought, oh, I know their fate. They made it out alive. Mm -hmm. And then in a successive memory, like five hours later, I'm looking at the fate of someone completely different than this group of people who I thought were safe. And I notice hey, the notebook is telling me who is in each memory. It lists everybody. So then I started making sure I could just pinpoint where people were. If a notebook told me, if the logbook told me, hey, these 10 people are in this memory, it was then my job to figure out where those 10 people were because I never noticed you know, all, 10 total people in this memory. That's weird. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed those people I thought were safe we're definitely not anymore uh, because of what transpired between the last memory and this memory, but they are not the focus of this memory. The focus of this memory is the this very like visual death mm-hmm. that's front and center. But then off to the side, there's this little like side story of death happening. And if you blink, you'll miss it. If you oh. just walk past it without looking in every direction, you'll miss it. It's like, oh man. That is crazy. I really do need to go back to all these memories and like look at every detail aside from the details associated with the main subject of death. In this. Wow. Multiple people can die in one memory, but you're only looking at the person who died at that exact moment. You know, It made me appreciate the act of going back and made me like enthusiastic about going back. Remind me to ask you about that because I... Obviously, I missed it too. I'll have to tell you after the show. I'd love to just swap like observations and like, did you notice this? Did you notice this uh, after this? So, again, it's a fascinating game because no two people will discover all this stuff in the same order. No two people will fill in all the solutions in the same order. It, it, that's just endlessly fascinating to me. Lastly, I just want to ask what advice would you have given yourself starting out or advice you'd give to somebody new? You know, we've talked about the glossary. Mm-hmm. We've talked about all the different ways you can observe clues. What's one thing you would share with somebody who's new? Um, unless you can play it in long spurts of time. I, I streamed this one. I would not recommend that to myself a couple weeks ago because then I would have yeah. been able to give it more attention, play it, you know, for 40 minutes, maybe if my kids are napping properly that gotcha. day. Uh Whereas, like, if I'm streaming this, I'm not going to turn the stream on for just 40 minutes, maybe, yeah. you know. Um, so I wouldn't have streamed it. Um, 
yeah, you mentioned the glossary. Pay attention to that. Have a better sense of direction just trying to go <laughs> back to these memories if you can find them easy. Yeah. Um, yeah, generally remember where memories are initiated if you can, or just sequences of memories. Just keep that in mind. Like there's a sequence of memories that trigger on the gun deck. Yeah. And I got kind of all those mixed up and I had to do trial and error to figure out which ones were which. I would say take 10 minutes and read the glossary at the start of the game. Um, there's a bookmark feature that I kind of scoffed at, but I later used when I was just repeating memories over mm. and over again. And it's when I was just focusing on one person who I didn't know the identity of. I just bookmarked all of their memories. And yes, it was a, a little hard to like navigate back to all of the uh, memories themselves, but it does bookmark in your notebook like where they all showed up. So that's helpful if you're trying to like trace the steps of everybody. Uh, I will also just add from what I can tell, what I've read and what I've seen online, there is a clue to figure out every identity and every cause of death. It's just some are more hidden and more obscure mm. and require like leaps of thinking more so than some of the stuff that's like right in front of your face. Yeah, there's there's a, f a couple too many assumptions than I am comfortable with, but. That's fair. That's fair. Well, anything else to say about Return of the Obra Din? No, I I get why it's a bit of a legend. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that it was mostly just like, you know, sitting on the visual art style, but it's it's definitely it's definitely something special. Yeah, it was uh, nominated for best indie the year it came out at the Game Awards, um, deservedly so I think. And Lucas Pope uh, is known for these very interesting uh, games where you're doing a very specific thing and you're kind of investigating things from a new perspective. Papers, Please is the predecessor to- oh, he did that? He did Papers, Please. Um, that's on our list of approved potential future featured games. So I'd like to play that one someday. Uh, maybe we will for Underplayed. Uh, but until then, that is our review of Return of the Oberdin. You can play it on PC, Mac, Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. Disco Cola rated it a 7.5. I rated it a 9.5. That's the end of this episode of Underplayed. You can find more of our episodes at kzum.org slash underplayed and on common podcast services like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Our music was composed by Jack Rodenberg. Our art comes from Onimochi. Underplayed is on Twitter at underplayedpod. You can find me on Twitter at Bopo, that's B-O underscore P-O, and check out that same handle on the GG app where you can see my game lists like a list of all approved future featured games, a list of games we might feature on underplayed episodes to come. And I am Disco Cola on Twitter and back on Twitch. Uh, and yeah, just follow me there. I'll be playing these featured and secret games. Next time, we will have two more secret games to review, and our featured game will be Ukulele, a 3D platformer developed by Playtonic Games. Until then, everyone, keep on playing.